if this system only works if everybody adopts it at the highest level of financial sovereignty and highest level of technical skill and highest level of ideological purity, if that's what it takes, it's not going to work. Hello there from Bedford, UK, the Bitcoin mecca of the world. How are you all? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Kraken, the best place to buy, sell and trade Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I've got an interview with Andreas Antonopoulos, which evolved out of the discussion related to XPubs. But before that, I do have a message from my show sponsors. So first up today, we have BlockFi, who are the future of Bitcoin and financial services. With BlockFi, you can open up an interest account and start earning interest on your Bitcoin I am a customer. I've been a customer for nearly a year and I love receiving my interest at the end of each month. I love my Bitcoin working for me. Also, with BlockFi, you can use your Bitcoin as collateral and take out a USD loan. You can also fund your BlockFi account directly from your Bitcoin wallet. And with the BlockFi mobile app, you can now fully manage your account on the go. With so much more coming this year, it's going to be another great year for BlockFi. If you are interested in checking them out, I do recommend you do your own research. Then head over to BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. And let's talk about Kraken, my favorite place for buying and selling Bitcoin. Kraken puts the power in your hands to actively get out there and start trading Bitcoin. And they are consistently rated the best and most secure cryptocurrency exchange. And if you want to start trading Bitcoin, they have all the tools you could possibly need. Whatever your level of experience, at Kraken.com, it could not be easier to sign up and start trading Bitcoin. They also have this beautiful mobile-first app, so you can buy Bitcoin on the go. And with margin trading, futures, and the OTC desk, Kraken has every option covered for you. There is no better place to trade Bitcoin. You can find out more at Kraken.com, or you can download the app. It's available for the iPhone and Android. Just search for Kraken Pro, which is K-R-A-K-E-N-P-R-O. Okay, so on to the show today, and I have one of my favorite guests back on the show. It's Andreas Antonopoulos, and recently I joined a conversation on Twitter, and it got a bit of a backlash from some of the more technical or hardcore Bitcoiners when I asked what an XPub is. There was a conversation related to them. I kind of heard one. I didn't know what it was. So I was just innocently, I would say, put in the conversation, yeah, what is an XPub? And yes, this caused a backlash. This caused a few days of discussions around what XPubs are now. I know I sometimes bait with tweets, and sometimes I can expect a bit of a backlash for this, but honestly, I didn't see this one coming. It was a genuine question, and yes, I could have Googled it. I know that, I know, but I didn't. I didn't. I put the question out there, and here we are. There were a really quite a few helpful responses. A bunch of people got into my DMs and started explaining things to me, which was very cool, so thank you to everyone who did that. But also, I got a lot of people complaining, like, how can you have a Bitcoin podcast and not know what an XPub is? Blah, blah, blah. Now... I cannot say it more than I already have. I've said it over and over again. Look, I'm not technical. I'm a marketing guy. I'm, I'm a creative guy. I'm, I'm just not technical. I look at this stuff. I don't understand it. Um, and one of the things is because I don't understand it, I always worry I'll fuck up. I always worry I'll make a mistake and do something stupid and lock up or lose my Bitcoin. And you know what? The show I make isn't aimed at people who are technical, who want to get into the weeds of Bitcoin. It's for people who are a bit more casual you want to invest and perhaps in a similar situation to me. Now, this is a position I've taken from the very start, and it comes with a lot of pressure. Some people claim that I have this responsibility to learn these topics as an educator, but I see it from the other side. Like, firstly, I just don't believe the majority of people using Bitcoin will care about these issues. They want it abstracted away, and, and this is my audience, and I want to ensure I'm always aligned with them and their experience. 
Secondly, I'm not sure I'm fully aligned with all the ideological issues that some Bitcoiners have. I've been down the libertarian rabbit hole and I definitely agree with many of the key principles. I've just never got to the point where I'm confident with this kind of vision of society can be achieved, what it actually means. Yes, we can agree the state is pretty shitty, especially where I am in the UK right now, but does everybody want an end to the state or do some people just want a better state? You know, maybe you'll say, well, that can't be achieved. The state is always shit. I mean, I I don't know. All I know is directionally, I personally would like to see a smaller and less interfering state. I'd like to know if it's possible to get there. What I do know is that for many people who are essentially no coiners, people not in Bitcoin, that taking that leap from hearing about Bitcoin and perhaps they hear about a hedge against inflation is goal 2.0 to becoming a full-blown anarcho-capitalist who wants to live in a citadel and have an AR-15, um, that's just a too big a leap for some people and some people might not want to make it but they still might want to hedge against inflation or they still might want censorship resistant money and that's kind of the place i think i sit kind of between these two worlds so anyway back to the xpub so when andreas came on and said he wanted to go through xpubs with me i obviously jumped at the chance but i did also want to discuss with him these kind of more deeper kind of political or ideological ideas and some of the pressures which come with this kind of war on narratives. And I wrestled with the show title quite a bit, like, do Bitcoin gatekeepers exist? And ultimately, I came to the conclusion they don't. Because, you know, nobody can stop me using Bitcoin, and nobody can stop me using it in the way I want. If I just want to buy Bitcoin and hold it on an exchange, yes, I shouldn't, but I can. And if I want to hold it on a hardware wallet, or if I want a multi-sig solution, I can, I can do them all. If I want to use XPubs or ignore them, Again, I, I can choose that. I, I'm kind of in this world where I'm, I'm kind of comfortable where I've got a self-sovereign solution. My Bitcoin is securely stored, locked up in cold storage. And that's kind of, that's kind of where I'm happy at. Yes, there's some other things I'm, I might want to know about, but I don't feel this pressure or this need to go too far down the kind of technical rabbit hole. And I know that pisses some people off. I'm sorry. But look, there's other shows out there that do this and they do it much better than me. It's good we have different shows. I, I would recommend listening to Stefan Levera or Noded or Tales from the Crypt. They're much better at that stuff than me. I, I, I think I'm I'm quite comfortable where I am with this. Anyway, listen, look, I hope you enjoy the show. I always like talking to Andreas. If you've got any questions about it, you've got any feedback, you can reach out to me. It's hello at whatbitcoindid.com. I do get a lot of emails. I do reply to them all. Uh, a lot of people rather discuss these conversations in private in dms or over email that's cool reach out to me also um yeah have a great weekend let's uh, see what the feedback to this one is andreas good to see you again man how are you i'm uh doing great thank you so much for having me on the show again i'm uh, really oh. excited well this was uh this was actually your idea this one but uh dealing with xpub gate yeah i think i oh. didn't i invited myself how rude <laughs> Yeah, but that's absolutely uh, absolutely fine. So, so XPub was a, a really interesting thing because I do I do sometimes trigger some of the more technical people or some of the more hardcore Bitcoin people when I kind of uh, petulantly refuse to learn certain things or I just I just ask certain questions and and specifically with XPub, actually in that scenario I didn't. I just saw a conversation. I was like, oh, what's an XPub, and this seemed to kick off a massive shitstorm because there was this expectation that I should know this, that people believe because I have a Bitcoin podcast, I should know this. And I don't know, I was a bit taken back. What did you make of it all? Um, 
Well, I thought it was both silly on its face and also very, very counterproductive for the broader cause, which is to help more people understand, learn, and adopt this technology. So silly on its face because, honestly, I'm quite tired of all of the litmus tests and purity tests and internal circular firing squad nonsense that happens in the Bitcoin communities. People gatekeep this community. And if you're not technical enough, uh, according to some arbitrary standard, if you're not maximalist enough, if you're not meat-eating enough, if you're not woke enough, then you're not a real Bitcoiner. And so this is the whole no true Scotsman fallacy. And not only is that silly, uh, because this is a neutral technology that shouldn't require some kind of purity test in order to be um, entered into the halls. Uh, it's almost like a hazing ritual, and mm. and and I find that and and I find that not only silly, but I think it is counterproductive to the ext extreme. I'd even go as far as calling it toxic. It creates a toxic climate in which people who are unsure of details, uh, people who do not necessarily fit a certain profile or idea of what a, a a Bitcoin person or a cryptocurrency person or a blockchain person should be, find find that it's a, a hostile environment in which if they speak up, they get ridiculed or they get told they're not a real Bitcoiner or it's a very unwelcoming environment. And, you know, who who elected these gatekeepers? I sure as hell didn't. I I I very much dislike that attitude. Yeah, the toxicity thing's interesting because the term itself has become certainly amongst certain, some people a, a badge of honor. Yeah. And there's a certain in crowd where you have to be toxic to be part of that and I kind of think I know where it comes from. Uh, let's, you know, a, a certain inflection point might be when you take a look at what happened with uh, Segwit2x, that scenario, there were a lot of people who were very concerned with the potential hijacking of Bitcoin. And if you agree with them, which I do, I, I, I'm glad what happened happened, is that the the conservative protection of the Bitcoin protocol now has seemed to radicalize, and I'll, I'll probably get criticized for using that point, but radicalize people to the point where they now seem to harass people on on other issues which are not related to Bitcoin. So, for example, if you show any form of statism that you believe in the state, that becomes a, a point where you might get harassed. Whereas I think a lot, there, not everybody who's going to come into Bitcoin is going to be an anarcho-capitalist. Some people just believe in the state. They just want a better state. But this kind of certain kind of groupthink around that you must be anarcho-capitalist, there must be full destruction of the state, you must uh, fully you must fully adopt this to become a Bitcoiner, I think is, is counterproductive to the expansion of Bitcoin, while at the same time, I do support and agree with the conservative protection of the protocol. But I separate right. the two. Yes. And there's multiple levels to the protection of the protocol. So consensus exists at multiple levels. There's 
protocol consensus, and, and that has to do with technical measures taken to not deviate from the protocol. So that's things like refusing to run the software client that implements bigger blocks, um, or even going one step further, implementing a user-activated soft fork client to, um, to basically embargo miners who don't uh, activate SegWit. Those are technical measures. And then there's social consensus, which is creating a set of principles that the community broadly agrees on, and then vigorously defending these through narrative, through speech, through the exchange of ideas. And, and I think that's valid too, as long as you keep it focused on the principles of consensus. So I think um, having certain expectations that people who say they believe in Bitcoin can actually ar articulate or enumerate which principles make what they believe in actually Bitcoin and not something else. I think that's fair. Uh, you should be able to say, well, you know, if, if you don't believe that there should always be a 21 million coin limit, then you don't really believe in Bitcoin because that's a defining principle. A and the problem is there's no clear line. So you can keep expanding the set of principles that you have to defend. And at some point you cross over into the realm of the absurd where um, you bundle a whole bunch of political, ideological opinions that, that you strongly identify that form a worldview and you associate all of those in an exclusionary manner with what is Bitcoin and then gatekeep anybody who's not in total agreement across all of those points. At that point, it becomes counterproductive. And you, the, the question is, where do you draw the line? Which principles are indeed sacrosanct and which principles are simply litmus tests that you can use to continuously elevate the, the degree of purity that you expect from new adherents or people joining? There's a big danger to that. And in fact, we can see that historically in a whole bunch of social movements. There's the revolution, and then there's the counter-revolution and the purge. So, you know, first you have the French Revolution, and then you have people like Robespierre trying to continuously elevate the level of purity of adherence to the revolutionary principles, which means that more and more people get their heads chopped off because they weren't sufficiently pure, because they are traitors to the original principles of the revolution. We saw that in the French Revolution. We saw that in the Russian Revolution. We even saw that in the American Revolution. So uh, this is a, a feature of social movements. And it's a very dangerous feature because it represents the beginning of the downfall of those social movements. They, they, they go from social movements that have principles to social movements that became a a dictatorship of principles, of a narrowing and narrowing and narrowing counter. And of course, the people within that circle of purism have to be absolute hypocrites um, because the tests get so hard that eventually no one can pass them unless they're lying, right? <laughs> so so yeah. you end up with the only people who can really claim purity being the greatest hypocrites of all because they're lying so hard um, so as to be able to check all the boxes. And they're constantly looking for traitors in the midst. It's a toxic cultural phenomenon. 
Um, I hope we don't go there in Bitcoin. And certainly gatekeeping how much technical knowledge an end user, commentator, educator, podcaster should have certainly seems to me past that line. That's not defending a principle of Bitcoin. That's now gatekeeping so as to separate the purists from the non-purists. That's tribalism, straight up tribalism, and it's yeah. toxic. And it, it, it takes me to that point where I start thinking about, you know, if I'm, yeah, my friends know what I do for a living. If I if I go down to the pub and they're like, so what's, what's the deal with this Bitcoin thing, people? Like, if uh, I don't you mean the ex-pub? The ex-pub. <laughs> well, ex-pub now we're in lockdowns so we can't go to them. Yeah. But no, you know, if I'm sat down there like, Pete, what's this Bitcoin thing? And I can say, well, you know, it, it is a form of digital gold. It, it is censorship resistant money. You can send it, you know, nobody can stop you. It's trustless. Um, and because of the 21 million um, fixed limit, it hopefully can be a good hedge against inflation. I can pretty much try and convince them. But if I, if I start saying, well, you know, it's the best money we've ever had, um, it is ultimately a chance to bring down the state, um, remove the government. Um, but with that, you're probably going to have to start arming yourselves just to protect yourselves. And then potentially you might end up living in a citadel. Uh, that kind of Bitcoin dystopian future is a, is a very tricky one to try and sell to people. And, and ultimately, I think it's quite off-putting because like I, I said, there's, there's plenty of people who have a valid dislike for the state, and I understand that. Um, at the same time, I've, I'm still not entirely in that scenario where I, I believe that a stateless solution would ultimately be a better scenario. I sometimes think, would it actually be a breakdown of certain aspects of civilized society? Would it take us into a more date? Yes, we have liberty, but does it end up becoming a more dangerous society? And, and, and I yeah, see do, valid do arguments on both sides. Do, do you have to go full Atlas Shrugged in order to adopt Bitcoin? I think ultimately yes. that's that's the question. Um, and certainly a lot of people think you do. Uh, I've never thought that's the case. In fact, I think there is a way to present the appeal of Bitcoin as a form of hard money, as a form of independent technocratic money uh, in a way that appeals to left libertarians and perhaps even leftists, not, not autocratic communists, but, but people who are opposed to kleptocratic, monopolistic, broken down capitalism. And you're like, listen, the banks are wrecking everything. Here's how you take away power without going to autocratic communism by maintaining principles of free market and transparency. This also works as anti-monopolistic, anti-corruption money. I think there's a very good argument to be made there. Uh, and I think it's a shame that that's beyond the pale for, for some people, which then makes it difficult to, to make that argument. But, you know, again, that's just my personal opinion. Nobody has to follow that or agree with me mm -hmm. on that. I, I I just wish we'd, you know, notice that this, the crossfire from this circular firing squad is not only turning people against us, but it, but it's also, it, it, ironically, it, it is in many ways, many of the things that these same people claim to be abhorrent. 
this is cancel culture. This is political correctness. This is ideological purity. This is not, not respecting the marketplace of ideas. This is an attempt to reduce the range of expression, to counter arguments, not with better arguments, but with silence, uh, silencing of the people who are making those arguments. And this is snowflake behavior. Uh, <laughs> ironically, this yeah. is trying to turn Bitcoin into a safe space where you can't have a, a conversation about. Um, and, and I think that's. And, and it's also saying that Bitcoin needs defending um, because the market can't decide on its own. Mm. Which I again, I find out. Yeah, no, I'm I'm with you. I think one of the the tricky things, and it is something I wrestle with. I think some of the conflict comes from obviously there's a certain portion of Bitcoiners who don't particularly like my show, and they, they prefer other shows. And there's some other amazing shows out there do a, probably a much well significantly better job than I do on the technical discussions. Um, and my use case and use of Bitcoin is very simple, Andreas. From when I first got in, I very quickly moved to a hardware wallet. And I backed up my private key, and and that was it. I would buy Bitcoin, send it to my hardware wallet, and then occasionally I would uh, send Bitcoin out from my hardware wallet, and that's all I ever did. And I used to see all these conversations about coin selection and coin join and things, and I used to think, that's just not for me. It's just too complicated. I'm not going to bother with that. And I think some of the conflict comes because because the show, I didn't expect the show to do well, but because there's like you know a good portion of people listening to it. There's an expectation that I have this responsibility to to be a let's say quote unquote good Bitcoiner, but to be somebody who understands issues of privacy, who does run tour, etc. So where but, my, but I that's wrestle not, with, but that's not the the basic concept behind the marketplace of ideas is if you think you can be a better Bitcoiner than Peter and teach this better to newbies, go make your own fucking show. Like <laughs> if it's that easy and. It's not, as both of us know, because we actually mm -hmm. have to do it. This criticism comes, for the most part, from people who sit on the sidelines and don't actually do any of the work. Their perfect imaginary show is always better than the actual show you produced. Their perfect imaginary book is always better than the book I actually published. And I got the same criticism many, many times. And, and so the best answer to all of this is to ignore them. But I'd like to go back to this idea that your technical understanding and, and skill set in Bitcoin has to be above a certain bar for you to be considered a real Bitcoiner or a true Bitcoiner. Um, and I really like this concept that was introduced by my co-host on the Let's Talk Bitcoin show, Stephanie Murphy. And she talked about the staircase of financial sovereignty. And the bottom level is where you are someone who's never considered any of these topics, right? So you're basically a fiat wage slave. Mm -hmm. Step mm -hmm. one is being interested in cryptocurrency. Step two is acquiring some. Now, how are you going to acquire it? Most likely through a centralized KYC exchange, and you're going to put it in a custodial wallet. And that is unacceptably non-Bitcoiner. Well, 
No, in the in the staircase of self-sovereignty, that's that's step two up the staircase. And you're already two steps above and you've left behind the fiat wage slave mentality. You understand the idea, you find that idea appealing, and you have taken action to move towards that idea. That action isn't perfect and it's not complete. But at that point, you shouldn't be told you're doing it wrong. You should be told you're doing it right. Congratulations. Now, let me show you the next three steps because get comfortable where you are. And I got more to show you. And you can take the next step when you're ready. Well, we should let me just throw something that. in there. Sorry, Andreas. Uh, let me just throw something in there. So I completely, I actually wrote down my steps here. It's funny you, you should say that. I think what I was wrestling with is that. I always want to keep my position as somebody who is almost like a noob, who em empathizes yeah. with the experience and also want to challenge ideas that that I think are um I think don't think people think through enough. And in doing so, so for example, the everything that came out with regards to a node, I understand how important nodes are. I really do, and I think everyone should. And you know, I do use a node now. But at the at the time previously, I said most people aren't going to. Mm -hmm. And I stood by that despite the criticism because I, I actually stand by that as an issue. And I think it's more important to defend the idea that the vast majority of people won't be bothered with that yep. than, than join the train and say, no, everyone should. Because if the vast majority, if I'm right and the vast majority of people won't, then at least we can deal with that as an, an, an issue. We can say, okay, what does that mean? Like, what does that mean for the network? What does that mean for, you know, uh, Bitcoin itself? Um, yeah. And, and if, I kind if of keep myself in that place. If that if this system only works if everybody adopts it at the highest level of financial sovereignty and highest level of technical skill and highest level of ideological purity, if that's what it takes for this system to work on a global scale, it's not going to work because most people won't. Most people won't protect their privacy. Most people won't uh, go beyond the very first steps. Um, can people take some steps up this? And can we live with a system where a small minority go all the way to the top of the staircase and they become the backbone that keeps this system open and free and usable and sovereign and re robust for everybody else? Assuming that majority won't, they won't run a node, they won't, um, maybe they'll never leave a custodial exchange. If they do, they they won't run privacy software. They won't use coin joins. They won't. It's, there's all kinds of things that, especially at first, unless these things become automatic, invisible, default, um, uh, you know, where it's it's actually harder not to do it the right way. Um, then most people won't. Right. Okay. Well, I've gone one step further. So I'm one one further step. Up the staircase. So I do have my Bitcoin now in a multi-sig, dis geographically distributed uh, set of keys. And, and I know I'm doxing my own process there, but I'm actually quite comfortable that it would be very difficult for somebody knowing this to actually come and steal my Bitcoin now, rather than knowing I have a hardware wallet. But that, that's right. The that's the principle of security by obscurity is not security. So yeah. you should be able to reveal your security plan, and it should be equally robust as if you didn't. Because if your plan is the security best practice, then people can simply assume that that's your plan, and it should still be secure. Yeah. Well, so that's the point I'm at now. And I'm kind of mm -hmm. happy with this one. And and I watched one of your pre when 
prior to doing my interview with uh, Johnny Levine from Chainalysis, I actually watched one of your presentations on the importance of privacy. And I was like, okay, I get it. I fully understand why this is important. Also going back and reading some of David Chaum's uh, writings with regards to privacy. Again, I get it, why they're so important for society. Every time I've looked at how I achieve you know, perfect privacy with Bitcoin, I'm just like, I don't think I can do that. Possibly can, but the amount of effort that's going to require, I don't see the trade-off for me. Now, that will trigger some people. They say, you should, you have a responsibility. But actually, I want privacy to be something that's provided for me. It's kind of abstracted away. It's just, it that, just happens. That's a pragmatic approach. We We cannot expect privacy in Bitcoin to work unless and until it's implemented so deeply in the protocol that you don't have to think. And in fact, mm. the option of doing things without privacy is the hard option. Just well, like today, we're, we're using SSL in our browser right now, um, not because we wanted to, not because we chose, but because it would probably take us 30 minutes of tinkering with configuration to turn it off. And then this particular website probably wouldn't work anyway. Very true. Okay, so what is though? What is from your perspective? Everything you know, everything you've written about. What do you think my next step is on on the ladder? Where do you think? Do you not, know Pete? This is something you should look at. Well, and that depends. So, first of all, I think the bar on a personal level can keep rising if you want, or you can reach a a, a point of stasis where you are comfortable with the outcome and for the use case that you're using this for is good enough. You may have already reached a point where there's no real benefit to moving further up for you individually, although there might be a, a broader network benefit. But in, in a system that is decentralized, that is driven by individualized incentives, we have to accept the fact that the moment it becomes no longer incrementally useful for the individual, that individual will stop progressing along that path. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, you're not no going to do it for yeah. the good of the network if you're not incentivized to do it for the good of Peter. Oh, yeah, and, of and, and this system is kind of designed to make sure that you do things because they're good for Peter. <laughs> That's one of the essential aspects of this is to align the individual incentives so that you do these things. And there may be a point at which it is no longer really significantly better for you to do this. And in fact, it might be just complex enough to take the next step that it's not worth doing. The, the question is, can we continually raise the bar across the whole system, protocol level, design, user interface, so that the level at which it becomes both beneficial and easy for you to do is higher over time so we can progress more people up the staircase? Uh, I think we can. And I think that should be the conversation. If it's not, if you're not going further up the staircase, that's not your fault. Uh, and system design shouldn't be, well, you're not motivated enough. You're not virtuous enough. You're not responsible enough. You're not praying hard enough to get the benefits of the system. No, the system should keep making it easier and easier for more people to just stumble their way up that staircase. Otherwise, it's not good system design. We so, should probably say yeah. here, like, and something I reiterate, this this to me isn't a criticism of people who have been working and building 
on Bitcoin. I think people have done amazing work. Sometimes some people will say, oh, it's a bit disrespectful. Or, well, you should learn to code or what are you contributing? You can you can um, write, um, you could become a contributor. It's like, well, no, I definitely can't. I don't have that skill set and I'm not going to develop that skill set because my skill set is in content creation. But I don't. when I say these things, it's no disrespect to the work people are doing. I'm just saying this is this is the level I'm happy at and I accept my own personal trade-offs. And and you're already more motivated than the average person. So mm. we can't solve this problem by making you individually more motivated to do this. We have to look at the system design to lower the level of difficulty for everyone so that even lesser levels of motivation push people to adopt greater levels of privacy, greater levels of involvement in the system. This is not something you solve by browbeating each individual in turn until you get mass adoption through mass browbeating. Mm. Um, and, and claiming that, of course, the collapse of the broader economy and currency, um, when all other economies become Sudan, then everybody will need to do these things. So you'd better start early, cupcake, um, is not a plan. I, yeah. I don't want to have to see mass adoption in the context of Mad Max society. Um, what we need to be thinking about is how do we make each transition, each step easier and easier and easier? Part of that is teaching people the necessary terminology and the concepts in as simple way as possible so they can be immediately grasped. And part of that is making the system hide uh, more and more of that complexity behind default settings that are by default secure, by default private, that don't require any effort. That's the nature of technology development of innovation and um, trying to rush it along. You can't make people change faster than they're comfortable, and you can't rush along the development of technology. So uh, simply saying you haven't progressed enough because you're not intellectually pure enough to, to see where we're going. Um, it, what that reveals in my mind is a lack of confidence in the value of the technology without extreme ideological commitment. And I think Bitcoin is a technology that can be adopted and can progress and can grow without requiring extreme ideological commitment. And if it does, we're doing it wrong. One thing I would just add in there that'd be interesting to get your perspective on, because I always thought this, I always thought UX needs to be better, it needs to be simpler. I listened to a really good interview that I think Marty Bent did with Janine. And Janine said, one of the things she said that did actually, did make me question my thinking about this. She said, if you make UX too easy, you might make people a little bit careless with certain issues, like we are self-sovereign here, we are responsible for our private keys, we are responsible for our money, a stupid mistake can lead to you being compromised or losing your Bitcoin. And in making it too easy, you could potentially you could potentially lead people to, to making those mistakes. I did feel that was a fair point. Yes, that's true in the case where the abstraction is not a good metaphor for what's actually happening. So the intuitive action leads to unintuitive results. That's bad design. It's bad abstraction. This goes back to a fundamental engineering concept called fail-safe. Uh, mm. And people haven't usually hear that term and they haven't really thought about what that means. It, it has a very specific meaning. It's part of a 
number of uh, terms. So failsafe is the one you've heard. You've probably never heard fail open, fail closed, and fail unsafe, which are kind of the cousins of that one. Failsafe means a system where when it fails, the outcome is safe. So that would describe a nuclear reactor that if it overheats, shuts down on its own. The, the failure mode itself triggers the safe outcome. For example, because the motor fails, well, if the motor fails, then the, the lead rods simply drop through gravity. They have no choice but to drop through gravity. They're held up when the motor's working. If the motor fails, they just descend through gravity. And so the reactor shuts down. Fail to safe. You have um, things like fail open. Uh, you see that you're from the UK, you know this. Um, fire doors in the UK. That's something I noticed immediately. Systems in the UK are designed to fail open in the case of a fire. So if a fire happens, the doors swing open because an electrical circuit gets cut and then mechanical springs push the doors open and they have no choice but to push open. They have to be physically held in the closed position or they fail open so that people can get out. So. With security design, these concepts are really important. Our systems should be fail safe. If, if, if the security mechanism you have in place fails, that should result in your money becoming safe. So, we, and we can describe that in Bitcoin. Um, one example would be if you don't um, take an action by a specific time lock, then the only address that the Bitcoin can be sent to as a whitelisted address that you've specified in advance, right? That's an example of a fail-safe system. So our abstractions, our designs, our technology engineering should use these concepts because you can't assume that things will go well or that people will exercise caution or that knowledge and skills will be complete and adequate for a failure condition. And we don't generally design computer systems like that. That's something we see more in product design and in systems engineering in the real world. But we can design software like that. And in fact, cryptography is one of the domains where we can more easily design systems like that. So that's a challenge for designers. That's not a challenge for the audience to rise to the level of my magical thinking. It's the challenge for designers to bring their designs down to within the grasp of the average person who isn't willing to change radically. Um, and there will always be a number of people who, through necessity or ideology, are going to go the extra mile, are going to study harder, go on a steeper learning curve, and achieve greater things, but you can't build adoption on that. Yeah, yeah, because I have this feeling the ma majority of people I know want Bitcoin for a couple of purposes. Um, they want to speculate. They they just want to speculate because they believe that uh, Bitcoin will continue to grow, more people will adopt it, and they want to see the upside. And then I, a similar reason is I have a lot of friends who are nervous about the economy. And they're nervous about inflation because they keep getting told that so inflation is coming. So it's a hedge. I don't have many friends who are talking to me about saying, I really need to be, have private transactions. I'm, I really don't want the government looking at what I'm doing. If you offered it to them, 
And you said, look, you could, they would obviously want it. But these are the same people who've been told time and time again what Facebook is doing with their data and still have accounts with them. They still right. have accounts with them. And I think there is, a, sadly, a, a majority, a large majority of people who just don't care about these things that we, maybe in Bitcoin, But that's a luxury. About. Yeah, That's, that's a luxury. an absolute luxury. And, and of course, if your government is not actively snatching people with vans and disappearing them in the night, as is currently happening in Belarus, yeah or um, a, a, a whole host of totalitarian countries. But your adoption model, your mainstream adoption model for Bitcoin can't be everywhere becomes Venezuela, therefore everyone needs to take these things seriously. First of all, because we, don't, we hope that that is not the case. And, and, and second, because that really limits the, the success scenarios for this technology. You're saying only if all of these conditions play out precisely do you end up in that scenario of the you know um atlas shrugged hyper bitcoinization we all live in venezuela um no that's that's not the model to mainstream adoption the model to mainstream adoption is much more mixed it's much more nuanced it involves a, a whole bunch of people who just have coinbase accounts and are using it just as a speculative hedge against inflation a whole bunch of bankers trying to um, chase yield and not giving a shit about any of our ideology. Uh, a whole bunch of people in totalitarian countries who have found that permissionless is the only system that works, so therefore they have to use it, and everything in between. And that mishmash of incentives and skill levels uh, gets us to adoption while we continuously improve um, the design, the engineering, the user interface uh, to make the number of people who can easily transition into a system like this bigger. That's always been my opinion. And that means, honestly, being humble about what you can and what you can't teach, what you can and what you can't learn, and not thinking that one skill set beats all other skill sets. If everybody needs to learn how to code, great, that's a, that's a dead end. Uh, if, uh, if the only contribution you can make is by coding, that's a dead end too. So instead of thinking about creating narrow and narrower conditions which lead to dead ends, what we should be thinking is exactly the opposite. How can we make this as broadly appealing as possible? Now, that doesn't mean throwing away the principles because that's pointless, right? And that's the other side of this, which is the people who want mainstream adoption by complete compromise and capitulation. Yeah, we'll get mainstream adoption as long as we apply KYC AML at the protocol level and give all of the keys to a central bank. Yeah, you got mainstream adoption, but not for Bitcoin, for, you know, for George Orwell coin. And, and nobody really needed that. Although, in fact, Facebook is building one, so you're not going to be able to compete with them. They have better marketing. You, you, you need to say, what are core principles that we have to defend? And what are not core principles that we have to engineer away the necessity of, of applying them, right? Next up, I talk to Andreas more about Bitcoin privacy and ex-pubs. But before that, I've got a message from my amazing show sponsors. So first up, we have Casa, who are without doubt the best in Bitcoin security. With Casa, it could not be easier to protect your Bitcoin from hackers, personal mistakes, in-person attacks, device failures, and so much more. And I've received a few emails recently from people considering Casa. Look, if you've got any questions, you can reach out to me and you can also reach out to the team. 
But for me, since becoming a customer, a paying customer, by the way, they offered the product to me for free and I turned it down. But since becoming a customer, I've had so much peace of mind knowing that my Bitcoin is securely stored away in a multi-sig, away from my own mistakes and the hackers. And if you're interested in Casa, they do have a product for every Bitcoiner. With Casa Gold, you get triple the security of your hardware wallet for only $10 a month. With Casa Platinum, you get their three or five multi-sig, which is the best protection for large Bitcoin holders at a great price. And with Casa Diamond, you get a full service offering, including customized personal security review, inheritance planning, and of course, the best in class of security. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get this peace of mind that I have. Find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. Also, let's talk about my sponsor, sportsbet.io, the best in online gaming. And we've got the Premier League back this weekend, Liverpool kicking off their title defence against Leeds, which should be a very easy three points. Also, keep an eye out for Southampton this weekend. They will have a Bitcoin logo on the front of their shirt because sportsbet.io is the main club sponsor this year. And to celebrate, they've got a saintly offer. If you place a bet on sportsbet.io of at least one MBTC or 10 euros or the equivalent in accepted currencies, you will get an equivalent free bet on Southampton's match this weekend against Palace. The minimum odds for qualifying is a 1.5 bet and it must be placed today. Friday the 11th by 11.59pm and your free bet will be credited tomorrow, Saturday the 12th at 10 GMT. I'm going for a Southampton win and I'm also going for a Liverpool win, of course. If you want to find out more, head over to sportsbet.io, which is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O. And lastly, this week, we have Least Authority back as a sponsor on the podcast. Now, this one is for you techies out there, the builders creating applications. Least Authority is a security consulting company pushing the limits on how to build privacy-respecting solutions. They specialize in security audits, design specification reviews, and security by design. And they can help you improve the security of your wallet application, key management solution, layer 2 protocol, P2P network design, use of cryptography, and so much more. If you would like to boost your security strategy, you can arrange a no-obligation call to find out how Least Authority can help you with your next project. Just head over to their website and hit the schedule a call button. That's leastauthority.com, which is L-E-A-S-T-A-U-T-H-O-R-I-T-Y.com. So, next step on the staircase, because I kind of, like I say, I'm, I'm very comfortable that my uh, long-term Bitcoin cold storage is wrapped up in a multi-sig. Keys are geographically distributed. It's pretty locked down. It's like for me personally to move any coins is very hard. It takes a lot of effort and a lot of planning. I'm very comfortable with that. But the next stage I'm kind of feeling like I need to get to and, and that I want is that I want to start transacting a bit more with Bitcoin. I want to accept it a bit more for what I do in terms of kind of the work I do. And what I am worried about is that I am leaving this trail behind on the blockchain that people can track everything I've done. I'm not fully aware what my addresses mean. Like what what is that telling people? That is definitely the next step I'd like to take. And I don't feel like I can do that without learning a bit more. Does that feel yeah. like a natural the natural next step? Yeah. I, I think so. So being able to apply privacy enabling technologies of different types in order to be able to transact more often without creating Venmo, um, yeah. you know, without creating a public and obvious trail of everything you're doing. And that's not easy. It's not at all. Um, 
part of this, of course, is also defining your threat model. So people look at this privacy and security as if it's a binary. If I can't defend against uh, a targeted black bag operation by the NSA funded at a billion dollars, there's no point in doing any of it. Like, because obviously I can't, right? There's no, if, if, if they, the mythical they, the scariest they you can imagine, put their quantum computers a billion dollars and they're in, in operation, fuck Peter in the most incredible way possible through the use of blockchain analytics. There's nothing you can do about that. You don't have the means, the budget, the technical expertise, the operational ability to do that. But that doesn't mean you give up. And, and, and one of the, in order to take the next steps in privacy, you have to accept that doing a little is better than doing nothing, even if it's not doing enough. Does that make sense? Yeah. So that's threat modeling. I, I would use, it's the same thing with wearing masks during a pandemic. Does it stop? No. But we're playing probabilities here across thousands of instances of risk all in a row, right? So do, if I increase the probability of success and decrease the probability of failure at each step of the way over a thousand steps, the end result is measurable. The difference is measurable. Even if I only took a tiny, tiny step, it compounds. Risk compounds. And that means that you can take measures that have an impact without being 100%. And you don't give up just because you can't do 100%. So you know how do you how do you go to the next level well first of all one thing i recommend is having different tiers of crypto you have your cold storage you have your warm storage and you have your hot wallet and treating those as completely distinct trying not to move too much between them and your cold storage takes you months to get to plane tickets whatever else your warm storage, uh, to me, warm storage is what I use to run basic operations for my companies. So that's payroll, accounts payable, accounts receivable, uh, buying equipment, paying contractors, etc. That's a, si a single key hard hardware wallet. So I use a hardware wallet. It's a multi-currency hardware wallet. And I use that to pay my employees and stuff like that. There's only so much privacy I can do on that. Uh, because it involves a lot of touch points with a lot of people with varying privacy profiles. And the privacy I'm trying to achieve is to make it difficult for a medium well-funded, medium well-motivated adversary, as we would call them in information security, to be able to casually reveal what my payroll is or who my employees and contractors are. And I'm relatively confident that I've achieved that. I, if you have $5,000 to spend with a private investigator who is a specialist in blockchain analytics, and you have a bit of information about my operation, you still won't be able to get that much out of it. If you have $500,000 to spend and access to FBI resources or the resources of internet service providers, et cetera, it's going to be trivial. It's going to be transparent. You're going to break through. If you can buy a ch chainalysis 
account um, with unlimited access, you're going to break through this. So I've calibrated it for that level because what I'm protecting is not state level secrets. It's the privacy of myself and my employees. Um, and again, what am I comparing this to? Better than banking. That's mm. the goal, right? It doesn't have to be perfect. It has to be better than banking. And in fact, banking is a lot easier to track, surveil, and breach the privacy. And then I have a hot wallet, and my hot wallet is like cash. And this is something where I'll interact with complete strangers, and some of those strangers will have bad intentions. So let's say I'm donating Bitcoin to someone at a meetup. I don't know who they are. Or maybe someone comes up to me and say, can you sell me $10 of Bitcoin at a meetup? I just want to play around with it. Sure, I'll do that. Um, I'm going to use a vanity address for that. Like Everybody knows it's me. Uh, I don't care. So I've calibrated my privacy for three different tiers. I've calibrated my security level for three different tiers. My warm wallet is going to be on a smartphone. Uh, a, my hot wallet, sorry, is going to be on a smartphone. It has a pin. That's about it. Not very much security there. And because of that, I won't put more than four or $500 on there. No more than I would ever carry in a physical wallet in my back pocket. In my company account, yeah, by necessity, I'm going to have a few thousand dollars because I need to run a business and payroll is more than that. And everything else is in cold storage. And so creating tiers for security tiers for privacy, tiers for risk, and then being clear about who you're protecting against and accepting that it's never going to be 100%, but it's worth making the effort anyway. Does this make sense? Yeah. So that, that's making me think, okay, so what are my risks here, Andreas? If I'm running my long-term cold storage, but I also have like a warm storage, which is my invoicing and you know, payments, what if I wanted to move, say I had excess funds in my warm wallet because I've had you know, a couple of good months and uh, I want to put them to cold storage, what are my risks on moving Bitcoin between the two? Am I just, you know, as somebody who's not being knowledgeable about coins and, the, and how people track the blockchain, am I suddenly exposing my cold storage to somebody? What, what's going on there? What do I not understand? So, yes, you are in a way. So one of the things you have to carefully consider there is, and this is probably the first step on the privacy staircase, and that is address reuse. So most of the information we leak in Bitcoin is through address reuse. The way companies get around the pseudonymous nature of Bitcoin, where you don't have names of people, but you have Bitcoin addresses, is to try to correlate Bitcoin addresses by seeing when they occur together in a transaction and then try to de-anonymize Bitcoin addresses by seeing when they touch a system that collects identity information. So if you originate Bitcoin from an exchange that has your ID, if you send Bitcoin to a merchant that is going to send you a t-shirt to your name and address, um, those types of activities will de-anonymize those specific addresses. When those addresses touch other addresses by being associated in a transaction, then you have correlated them. 
uh, and by correlating them, someone can make can draw inferences. These are not certainties; these are probabilities. That's how these analytics companies work. So they can say, for example, okay, we know that on Coinbase, this withdrawal happened from Peter's account. Coinbase gave us that information, or any of the other exchanges. They all do it. Now we then see that um, later on. Peter sent Bitcoin from this address to another Bitcoin address and also from these three other Bitcoin addresses that we previously didn't know belonged to Peter, but they were all signed for in the same transaction. We can reasonably assume that all three of those addresses belong to Peter. If one of the inputs belongs to Peter and this transaction doesn't look like a coin join, we can assume that all of the inputs belong to Peter. Therefore, we can now track where all of these other inputs came from and assume that they were also belonging to Peter or paying Peter. Now, if you use that to pay your cold storage, now the address that lands in cold storage can now be linked to Peter. And if then you spend out of cold storage and bunch together a, bun a bunch of addresses and one of them has been linked to you, then all of the other addresses that are spent on that transaction are linked to you, et cetera, et cetera. So in, in information security, and specifically in Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, blockchain security, let's say, we call that taint, which makes every 13-year-old in the room chuckle because it means something very different among adults. So taint is, you can think of it in epidemiological terms. Um, when addresses touch, they spread the infection of loss of privacy between them. Right. Mm -hmm. And you have to think of contact tracing. Right. So we're contact tracing addresses. And that's why it's it's very difficult to make hard lines between these things. One way to do that is to use mixers. So that's why mixers are popular. So before moving, say, from your warm wallet to your cold wallet, you would want to go through a mixer in order to break the correlation between those uh, input addresses and the output addresses. If someone sees a coin join transaction that has 100 inputs and 100 outputs, they know it's a coin join transaction at the moment, but that also means that they don't know, they, they can't assume that the input addresses all belong to the same person. In fact, they know they don't, and they can't figure out which outputs belong to who. Hmm. Well, so I'm already in this position thinking, well, everything I've done for the last three years is probably all tainted. Could all, everything I've done almost certainly can be tracked back to all my purchases on originally Coinbase and Kraken and anywhere else. I haven't done any of this. So right. what am I meant to do? Do I accept it? Do I, do I need to do something with all my current Bitcoin or do I just accept that that's tainted? And then in future, have a whole separate procedure for future Bitcoin. This is what I'm, this is where I'm like, and also I'm just like, oh God, this seems like a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is why Bitcoin itself is not a coin that delivers great privacy because it requires a lot of work in order to achieve not even great privacy, but just some privacy. And this is why buying Bitcoin or earning it through trackable sources is bad for your privacy. Why it's much better to earn Bitcoin 
in a kind of peer-to-peer economy. So if some if, if someone pays you for something, the analytics companies are not going to see that it was you who got paid, right? Well, it depends which address you send it to. <laughs> well, if you don't reuse addresses. Yeah. Right? So if you use a fresh address, so if you can stop things from getting tainted when you earn them, when the Bitcoin comes into your possession, um, that's a great help. So my donation address on my website has been the same address for however long I've had it, a couple of years. So that's... Right. So address reuse is the number one thing you have to solve. And the way you solve that is by putting up a payment processing system. Mm -hmm. Uh, My favorite is BTC Pay, which is an open, free software. And what that will do is it will just generate a new address for every single person who wishes to make a donation. And so that way, it's much harder to track, right? Okay. So is this this where XPubs come in? Yes, this is where XPubs come in. So XPubs are simply a way to generate a whole sequence of addresses, Bitcoin addresses. And the magic behind them, the thing that makes them interesting is that all of these addresses can be generated without having any of the private keys. You only have the XPub, which is a master public key or an extensible public key. Uh, It might be at the root of your address tree, or it might be at a branch further up, a sub-account, a single currency sub-account, or something like that. But from that, you can generate a whole sequence, billions of addresses. And you can do that with simple software that you can put on a website that could just hand a new address to everybody who comes along. And all of those addresses belong to this seed. Which means that if you, if that seed is is a mnemonic phrase that you have on a hardware wallet, when you load up your hardware wallet, it's going to see all of those payments as coming in uh, on different addresses. But it will be able to track all of those addresses and, and see that you've been paid. Um, it has the whole tree, and it has both sides of the whole tree: the private keys and the public keys. Whereas on your website, you've given it just the public side. So it can generate addresses, but it doesn't have any of the private keys, so you're not at risk of having your money stolen. And that's one of the magical things about XPubs. It makes it really good for reducing address reuse by generating a a unique address for every uh, interaction Um, and also reducing the security risk by having no way of uh, spending that money. Now... XPubs do come with one risk, which is privacy risk. If the XPub leaks, they can see every address that can be generated from that XPub and basically gives people a read-only, watch-only wallet that mirrors every transaction you've ever done on that wallet. And so that's not good. Okay, so how do I get my XPub? Say I'm only using ah. a, a say I'm using a ledger, mm. and I'm like, does does the ledger provide it to me? Yes. So every hardware wallet can securely export just the XPub of a sub account, um, and that's a feature that you will find in all of the interfaces, uh, no matter which software's wallet you use to access your ledger. Um, they will all have a way of exporting an XPub. And you can tell it, 
you know how on your ledger you have account zero, account one, account two, yeah. you may have a number of sub accounts. So each one of those will have its own XPUB. And that XPUB will be just for that sub account. You're not exporting, you shouldn't export the master XPUB that gives all of the sub accounts. You should basically take one branch, one sub account, and export that. Um, so for example, on my warm wallet, I will use one sub account for my shop, my website. I will use one sub account for donations that are gifts towards me. And I will use one sub account for invoices that my clients pay me. And on my hardware wallet, that looks like account zero, account one, account two, and I can name those shop, donations, invoices. Now I can then take the shop XPUB and put it in my e-commerce store, and it can generate addresses that deposit into that account. I can take the donations XPUB and put it on the page where I'm soliciting donations, and that will generate addresses for people to donate. And I can take an invoices XPUB and put it on an invoice page where I can send my clients when I want them to pay an invoice. That way, nice and clean, separate. And, and you can't the, link one XPUB from one sub-account to another sub-account. So say an XPUB did get exactly. compromised, you could just close that one and nobody would be able to link everything. Find the others. Okay. So that does, that does feel like the next thing I should do. That does feel like that's a sensible next step. So for example, the donations page on my website, I should create yeah. this create the branch, find the, find the XPUB, export the XPUB. And I should do that. That feels like a, like it, that definitely feels like the next step. There is a benefit to me for doing that. Yes. I will put one caution out here now okay. because <laughs> a lot of people will fall into this trap. Your hardware wallet is the secure mechanism by which to export an XPUB, which is derived from your mnemonic phrase, your seed. Some people will be told, go to this website and type in your mnemonic phrase, and it will give you your XPUB. This should automatically make the hairs on the back of your neck rise up and go, wait, 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 I'm typing my seed onto a keyboard. Nope. Nope. I'm never doing that. My seed only gets entered into a hardware wallet. It never gets typed onto a computer. I never put it onto a keyboard. I never, my fingers are physically unable as I'm about to start typing the first word, my brain goes, what are you doing? I detect imminent typing of words from your mnemonic phrase. Stop doing that. That's what you should feel. Lots yeah. of people have lost money this way. Uh, it's a common scam. It's actually a scam that's used um, for cloud mining and things like that. People will say, take your seed, go here, type it in, give us the first XPUB, and we'll be able to send you your winnings from our incredible investment scheme. And of course, they're sending you to a phishing site that will take your entire seed. So as long as you remember, the XPUB comes from your hardware wallet because that's the only secure way to do it. Never type your mnemonic phrase anywhere except into a hardware wallet directly. Yeah. Yeah. So that one, I am experienced enough to know not to not to put my seed anywhere. So that does feel like something I should do and I will try. But also my like, think of the noobs, think of the beginners, think of the no-coiners. Like I also do think it just feels very complicated. And maybe that's like the trade-off for having privacy. I, I, maybe I have to accept that, but I do feel like, ugh. So, yeah. so here's how we design this away. Yeah, that's right? what I want to know. The, the way you design this away is by having 
an e-commerce or web payments system that you go to and it says, are you ready to receive payments? And it says, okay, connect your hardware wallet so you can select which account to send your payments to. And you connect your hardware wallet and it, and it says, there are, you know, do you want to select the first sub-account, the second sub-account, or the third sub-account? And you say the first one, and it says, okay, please confirm on your hardware wallet that you wish to export this first sub-account, and you do, done, right? Now, your hardware wallet will never just give the private keys. There is no function on the hardware wallet to export the private keys. There's no function to extract the seed on purpose. Mm -hmm. You cannot do that. So if a website asks you, plug in your wallet, and do you authorize exporting the public keys from this wallet. That's a safe operation. So you don't need to know how to export the XPUB, what the XPUB is, where to put it in. You go to the commerce page. When you're setting up your shop, it says, you already have a hardware wallet that's set up? Great. Let's send funds directly to it. Do you confirm that you want to send it to this hardware wallet? Do you want to use one of the sub accounts? Yes, no. Boom, boom. Click, click, done. We can abstract that detail away and abstract it in such a way that it is safe. It's not teaching you any bad habits, right? You're not likely to do it wrong. And there, there are some parameters around that. Obviously, you don't just go into a random website, plug in your hardware wallet, and give it access to the exported keys. But that's something that people are accustomed to. If you're doing, if you want to connect your hardware wallet to Ethereum MetaMask, or you want to connect it to the My Crypto desktop application, or the Wasabi wallet, or uh, et cetera, et cetera, you're going to go through exactly that process. That's where it pops up a little page and says, do you agree to an export? Yes. Type in your passphrase if you have it. Yes. Confirm on the screen. Yes. And then you do it. So you don't really need to know what an XPUB is or ever see one in order to do this, as long as the thing you're using to accept donations is nicely integrated with the hardware wallet infrastructure. Now, that happened a year ago. So a year ago, a common standard for integrating with hardware wallets called HWI, the hardware wallet interface, was created, and it works, and was integrated into BTC Pay recently so you can do that so that's my next step then i'm going to try that yeah, yeah and, I'm and so, give that a go. but but importantly a year and a half ago you couldn't do that without going into the weeds now you can do it without going into the weeds and five years from now it's going to be even easier so mm. it, it's not just about your skill level increasing it's also about the difficulty of doing this going down yeah yeah, well, I, I think with this one, it's definitely worth me trying. I look, I want it abstracted away. I mean, even now, I'm like, like my triggering language that triggers people is like, yeah, this is too complicated. And I know people come back and say, no, it isn't. You just haven't tried. And then somebody say, look, I'm, you know, I did it, but I still, I still feel like it's niche. It's a niche thing. But I'm gonna try it. I'm gonna give it a go. I'm gonna have it, a play. It is it. a niche thing. And again, you're asking people to understand a whole bunch of different technologies that perhaps they have no need to use in the rest of their life. And so, and if you're in it, in the weeds, all of these things appear straightforward, trivial, easy, et cetera. 
it took me months to understand what the hell an XPUB was or how it worked. It took me months to understand how a hardware wallet works. And I have a master's degree <laughs> in computer science. Like, um, we should not, and, and, and that doesn't mean, I, I may be the stupidest person on the planet to have a master's degree in computer science. I'm not disputing that. Sure. The reason it took me months to figure these things out was because I'm stupid. Great, granted, maximalist, you win. That's not the point. The point is there's plenty of people out there who should be able to use Bitcoin, who have none of the inclination, background knowledge, life experience, technical expertise, broad domain knowledge, and neither should they in order to be able to do these things. Well, then we're in agreement. All right, listen, that's that's what, got, that's what I'm going to do next. That's going to be my next project over the next couple of weeks. I'm going to have a play with that. I'm going to get that set up. I'm going to try BTC pay server. Um, before I'm we surprised close, you did multi-sig first. Well, so I did it with Casa though. So it was very simple. I've, I've used two multi-sig products. So I've used Caravan for a bet and there's absolutely right. no way I could have done that without somebody walking me through it. And I still didn't mm -hmm. understand it, but I use Casa's and Casa's is just super easy. Like it's, right. it's all abstracted away. It's, it's a breeze and I absolutely love it. it it's just, so that was that was an easy thing, but that's because someone created a UI for me to do it, whereas the right, UI exactly. with Caravan is a bit more complicated. Yeah, I mean, and I, I, I've been doing multi-sig since 2014, and at first it was a nightmare to do. And not just a nightmare, but not only were there no UIs, we're talking almost everything involves manually constructing transactions on the command line and copying hex back and forth. <laughs> and, and you look at that and you can draw one of two conclusions. One is you're not skilled enough. You should try harder, learn harder, study harder, or it's not easy enough yet. Uh, and I would draw the second conclusion. At that yeah. point, it wasn't easy enough. But the thing is, we've seen this in technology before. I remember sending my first email. 1989, Unix command line, right? And if you told me my mom will send an email exactly 20 years later to the day by simply swiping her finger across the screen of an iPad, um, you know, that's what it took. Yeah. And, and we are on the same track and it's going to take a while. Um, but the goal isn't to teach everybody Unix command line skills or demand that the, the goal is to hide enough of the complexity that more people can do it. All right. Well, listen, I'm definitely going to try it now. I'm going to have a play with that anyway. I'm not going to wait for the that part to be abstracted away. But before we close out, it's always a pleasure talking to you, Andres. But how are you? What's what's going on with you? Because we're all locked down. Um, you know, I'm doing great. Honestly, uh, the hardest part of this has been that I'm um, an extrovert and I really, really need socialization. So that's emotionally difficult to be shut in and not be able to go out and see people and 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 do my extroverted dance. Um, <laughs> my, my little social butterfly thing, um, that's hard, but in other ways, this has removed a lot of distractions from my life, um, being quite productive, got a lot of work done, made enormous strides in my professional work. 
and managed to keep up a very good uh, kind of fitness and eating regime. So you know how they say um, the pandemic 15 pound um, gain. So I've lost 15 pounds and gained muscle. So I'm I'm actually feeling good about myself. I'm coming out. uh, Well, I'm not coming out. I'm in it, but I'm in it stronger than I was when I got in it. Stronger, leaner, healthier, uh, more energetic. And so, you know, I'm pretty happy, but I'm also very, very fortunate to to have had kind of very easy conditions for um, weathering this uh, quarantine. So it's it's great. Yeah, I went the wrong way first. I was drinking loads and eating nonsense. But I'm now I did uh, I just stopped drinking 32 days ago. I was like, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm not going to drink while I'm on a lockdown. I I said I was going to do a month, and I did a month, and I was like, okay, I think I'm going to try to my birthday, which is end of October, but I, I might just carry on with it. I just congratulations. I yeah, I saw alcohol. the little um, I saw the little accountability screenshot you did. <laughs> yeah, well, I think some Good people think you. I'm. I think some people think I'm an alcoholic and I'm definitely not an alcoholic. <laughs> I just like a drink and I didn't drink a lot before the lockdown. Like it's a social thing, but I just thought I'd give it a go. And, um, but the app is great. Cause you just don't want to reset it. You don't want to reset yeah. it back to zero. It's like, so, uh, it does keep you accountable, but yeah, it's been a strange yeah, the fasting apps. The fasting apps work like that and oh, in a they? nice way to, to, yeah. Cause you, you turn it on and it says your fast has started and then you, you're like at, you're like at 15 hours and 38 minutes and you're like, yeah, I can do 22 more minutes. Fuck that. I'm going to get to 16. And then, and then you're like, I, I can, I can do 18. <laughs> yeah. That's a good, that's a good one too. All of these though, get, gamifying discipline, um, I think is, is a brilliant way to actually have technology work for us instead of sabotaging our happiness. I yeah. agree. Well, listen, I've learned a lot today. Uh, I've certainly learned about XPub, so I'm going to go and try this, and I'll let you know how I get on. But look, thanks for reaching out to me, and thanks for doing this. Um, I always enjoy talking to you. It's been a few times now, and um, yeah, I love having you on the show, and um, I also love following your Patreon, and uh, keep up. Oh, before we close out, how's the book? So um, last week, last Wednesday, in fact, no, last Tuesday, so it's exactly a week ago, I delivered the first half of the book to the publisher, the draft of the first five chapters. Okay. So 165, 170 pages done. Um, draft. It's going to go through uh, several rounds of editing. Uh, and of course, that was the easy half of the book. Uh, the less technical half, uh, the heavier stuff is in the second half. But we're actually making good progress. So my, um, you know, I'm, I'm working with Laulu Ashtakun. CTO of Lightning Labs mm-hmm. and Rene Picard, uh, who is one of the best educators about the Lightning Network in the space. Uh, and we're making some progress, um, just very, very slow and steady, uh, getting writing done every day. Uh, you know, a book is impossible to do if you look at it as a whole, and possible to do if you look at it as I'm going to get one paragraph done today, and is then it- one paragraph on top of that. And then one, and not worry about the whole book. Just worry about can I get a paragraph written today? Is it shifting your thinking on lightning at all in, in writing the book? Is it making you think about it deeper and making you realize anything? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's an incredible learning experience. Every book I've written so far has taught me the technology that I'm writing about to a level of depth that I I couldn't possibly learn 
uh, because I have to, right? So yeah. I go into it and I, uh, I've got a pretty good understanding of it, um, but I don't yet grasp the nuances, the ones that make all the difference. Mm-hmm. And then in, in order to explain it, I learn all of these nuances. Uh, having fantastic co-authors, I mean, they're, they're both far more technical than I am. And that helps. And so, yeah, and I'm, I'm also, as I'm writing it, I'm also coding examples and running lightning nodes in order to experiment with all of these things. And that's teaching me a lot about how it works. And I'm running a shop that accepts lightning payments um, for things like eBooks and stuff like that. And just having to keep that running and not crash and you know, b- make it so that people can pay me so that they have channels and all of these little nuances of, of not just in theory, has the, how does the Lightning Network work? In practice, for a real shop that's actually trying to do real sales, how does it work? Um, yeah, it's given me an appreciation for all the work that's gone into it. And I, I'm very, very bullish on this technology. I think it, it's right. gradually reaching a maturity level where I can say, you can do it. Absolutely. You can... You can use one of the easier to use wallets and become part of the Lightning Network. Amazing. Well, I look forward to that. Well, as I said, is that your next uh, step on the on the staircase? Um, Are you ready to get a Lightning wallet? Well, so I, I have a Lightning wallet. I have. Um, right. I well, I say I have a Lightning wallet. I historically used Blue Wallet, which I think is custodial Lightning, mm-hmm. as I remember. But I didn't. You know, controversially, I didn't have a huge issue with custodial Lightning wallets because. I didn't tend to keep much in that wallet. Like it was, it's a stepping stone. Risk. Yeah, it, it is a stepping stone. Um, but I don't have a huge use case for Lightning itself right now because my uh, use of Bitcoin is very much big ticket spends or invoices right. for work, and it's a for me it's a, just this long term saving technology, savings technology. Yeah. I don't have that use case yet, but I know it's coming. I know it's I have coming. a. I, I resell a. Well, I, I, I sell an open source book uh, on my shop for $2, which you can download for free if you want, but I've priced it $2. And the whole purpose of that book being on the shop is the smart custody book um, is because it only makes sense to pay with a lightning payment um, right. for that. And if yeah, you have right. lightning and you want to try it out, a $2 purchase kind of shows the value of that system. Yeah. Um, Maybe I should put something even lower priced, like ten cents. I don't know what you'd do for ten cents, but perhaps maybe. Well, but I'm sure, like you do, do it by chapters, sell chapters. Well, for ten cents, it will be a photo of me as Commander Worf, Lieutenant (laughs) Commander Worf of Star Trek. Some someone did a fan art of me in the in Worf's uniform, you know, with a Klingon bandolier and all of that. So I think that's worth ten cents. Don't I think you? that's I think that's fair. Nobody well, else does, but well, I, I think do. we'll we'll definitely have to do a lightning a lightning show when the book's ready. Anyway, I, I I want to get in the weeds with you on that. But look, as ever, Andreas, I always learn a lot when I talk to you, and it's um a lot of people won't know like when we when we see each other at um, conferences. There's a couple of times you've kind of like mentored me through some of the stresses that this space can give you. So I do appreciate your friendship as well as um you know, coming on the show all these times and hopefully these lockdowns are end and we'll actually get to see each other again soon. So fingers crossed. And yeah. Thanks th- again. Thank you. I, you're very kind of you to say, I'm really looking forward to that and let's do some more short shows and don't let the bastards get you down. Um, <laughs> they don't. You know, just, Most of the time. just, just, 
you know, uh, you do you. Uh, and if they think they can do better, let them try. Bring it on. All right, man. Well, listen, take care and we'll catch up soon enough, I'm sure. Okay, so what did you think of this one? Did you enjoy this chat with Andreas? What are your thoughts? What do you think about these topics? I did quite a long intro, so I'll, I'll try and keep this one a bit shorter. I, I always like talking to Andreas, not just here, but like at events. I've uh, I've kind of used him as a bit of a mentor sometimes with some of the challenges I've had, and he's always given me his time. We had a long chat out in... God, where was it? Were we in... I think we were in Uruguay, where we had breakfast one day, and we had a, a long chat about some uh, subjects, and he was very, very helpful to me. So thanks, Andreas, and it's always great to have you on the show. As I said, ultimately, I don't think there are gatekeepers because you can't gatekeep Bitcoin. You can't stop people using Bitcoin. So, you know, that point does fail for me, but it does feel, though, there is this kind of, like, war on narratives, which is interesting. I find it fascinating. Um, but sometimes that comes with a lot of pressure, for people to to have similar ideological beliefs if they're a Bitcoiner. Like, if you're a Bitcoiner, you should believe that, or you should believe this. And I, I don't know if I fully believe in that. Like, Bitcoin is the ability to transfer wealth. And yes, it appears to be a useful tool for libertarians, but you don't have to be a libertarian to use Bitcoin. You just have to want it for a, a purpose. That could be speculation. That could be the censorship-resistant transfer of wealth. That should be a hedge against inflation. There's a whole bunch of different reasons that you might use it. And I'm going to continue exploring this. I've got another show planned to, to get into this. Actually, I've got a couple because I think it's really interesting to get into this. Like, where, what is the role of toxicity? What is the role of the like conservative protection of the Bitcoin protocol? Does it extend too far? You know, should we care? Is it just... Different communities with different ideas. Yes, it's kind of complicated, but I'm going to continue getting into it. I hope you enjoyed it. If you do have any questions, you can reach out to me. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. I do reply to anyone. Outside of that, I've said enough, so have a great weekend, and I will see you next week. <laughs>